Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and my guest today on the show is Shane Moore, one of the authors with Sandra Morgan and Kimberly McOwen-Yim of a new book from IVP America called Ending Human Trafficking, a Handbook of Strategies for the Church Today. Shane is an author, editor and activist. She's the co-founder of Redbud Writers Guild and former director of operations at the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College Graduate School. Her first book, Global Soccer Mum, Changing the World is Easier Than You Think, chronicles her work with the HIV AIDS pandemic and her involvement with the One Campaign and received an endorsement from Roxinger Bono. Shane is a national guest lecturer on issues of global justice. Shane joins me now from the States. Hi, hello to you. Hello, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you, even to talk about this very awful and evil subject of human trafficking, uh, which needs to be dealt with. Now, Shane, this book emerged from a podcast called Ending Human Trafficking. How, how did the podcast and this book come about? Yes, this book was written in collaboration uh, with a writing team. And so, you know, as you mentioned, Dr. Sandy Morgan, she is the director for the Global Center of Women and Justice out of Vanguard University in Southern California, and Kimberly Yim, who's also been a writing partner of mine on past books on human trafficking. And Sandy um, has been doing this work for decades. And so we partnered with her and the Global Center for Women and Justice to create this book, uh, the Ending Human Trafficking podcast, which you can find it at endinghumantrafficking.org, has she has been Sandy has been doing that podcast since since 2011. Any topic you want to know, any expert, it's in these episodes. And so what what we set about doing when we were wanted to wanting to create a handbook of best practice strategies for the church, for the global church, for the Western church, was to sort of concisely break down these trainings that have been done for, for decades and, and, and with, with up-to-date information and up-to-date data of what is really happening in the, the lane of trying to end human trafficking. And a big passion on my writing team is this concept of collaboration. And that's our heart. And we wanted to model it. That's why there's a book with three authors, was we wanted to model that to the church that the only way we are going to effectively fight and end human trafficking is if the church effectively learns and knows how to collaborate with every entity working in the sphere of fighting human trafficking. So law enforcement, um, legislation, laws, all of that, all of those things also in the secular sphere that affect human trafficking, because it's not just a human rights issue, it's a crime and so it can get pretty nuanced on how the church can effectively do this work. Yes. How are churches and people of faith, you write about this in the in the first part of your book, as I seem to remember, but how are churches and people of faith viewed as a problem, are sometimes viewed as a problem when it comes to issues of human trafficking? Yeah. You know, one thing that we've learned in doing this work is that there's every, there's a lot of good people in the sphere of fighting human trafficking, but very often different entities have different agendas. So social workers might be solely focused on the victim that they don't want law enforcement to do their job because they're trying to protect the victim and law enforcement's trying to solve a case. So you find that these different entities sort of maybe have conflicting 
um, agendas, even trying to do good work. And so that the church actually falls pray to that same kind of idea that the church might have their specific agendas of, you know, spreading the gospel or adding numbers to their congregation or whatever it is, all of those things are good, but yet can create some conflict when you're trying to work collaboratively with the secular sphere. And so, and also, and we talk about this a lot in the book, Christians, of course, the church, of course, will see this as a ministry, but they very often then hang their ministry language on it. And so, you know, their, their skeleton of human trafficking work will have ministry Christendom sort of language on it that when you're trying to talk to your local law enforcement or a a career counselor or a social worker, they don't actually know what you're talking about because you're not speaking the same language. Um, The professional normative language of what it takes to fight human trafficking. And so we coined this phrase or whatever that we really, our hope is to make the church human trafficking literate so they, and so we, you know, so this book really does try to train church leaders and what is the Palermo protocol out of the UN and why do you need to know what that is as a church? What are the P's that are commonly accepted universally across the globe, you know, prevention, protection, prosecution, like what are those P's and why as your church and as a congregation, do you need to know how the rest of the world attacks this issue? So human trafficking literate, and often churches, to answer your question more concisely, they are not human trafficking literate. And so then they're not invited to the table. They're not invited to the human trafficking task forces that are happening at the city, state, national level, because they're they're not seen as knowing what they're talking about. Yes, there's a tremendous amount of great material in the book and resources and access to legislation and things. But what are, what are some of the resources that churches and Christian organizations can use to ensure best practice in this area? Pick up a copy of Ending Human Trafficking, a strategy for the church today. No, because we really did try to call that for people. Because, for instance, in the United States, and there's a thing at the State Department, it's called the TIP Report, and it comes out of the State Department. And this is you, anybody can access this online the TIP Report, the Trafficking in Persons Report. And it happens every year. And this is important for churches because let's say you have a, you're sending a small group missions trip to, I don't know, South Korea, or you're sending a, you're sending a small group to uh, Zambia or what, you know, whatever. It's important for a church to know how do they rate on the tip report? So the, the, the state department in partnership with, with all of these entities and these governments, they rate, they rate the countries on, you know, basically in a nutshell, the safest to the not, not safest or the ones that are doing a very good job of fighting human trafficking to the ones who are doing literally nothing. And so these are these kind of resources that are available to any church anywhere where you can say, where does this nation, where does, where does this nation that we want to minister to and rate on the tip report? And then, you know, how, what do we need to know? I mean, often Sandy, who does these trainings, she's trained in about 94 countries around the globe. Um, and even when she goes and when we go into these congregations for us here in the States, we want to say, do you even know what the laws of human trafficking are in your town? Do you know what the laws are at, at, at your state level? How about, how about the, do you know what the, the laws are of human trafficking, you know, going into the, this country that you are sending missionaries to, you know, we always say, 
you know, we don't, if it, you know, um, I was trained as a missionary, as was Sandra. And, you know, very often you do language training. If you're going to a country where that is a second language for you, you do language training so that you can effectively work with the, with the people in the communities. So we say, we say that also translates to working with human trafficking is know the language of human trafficking both in your own communities and perhaps in these other communities you're you're going to and you will find those resources very often at you know the state department level or the government level or the embassy level of what is happening in those communities is the church uniquely positioned for prevention of human trafficking do you think and it's because it works in local communities? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the strongest um, sort of premises or thesis of the book is that we truly cannot emphasize enough our belief that the church is uniquely positioned for the prevention of human trafficking. Human trafficking is a crime of money. It's a, it's a crime of money. And, you know, so very often... Um, so much emphasis, of course, is placed on um, the traffic, the trafficking of minors for sex trafficking. I was just having this conversation actually with a pastor I'm calling up from Dallas, Texas, USA right now. And it was a couple of pastors and they were both saying, when I think of human trafficking, I think of sex trafficking of minors, which of course is a horrible evil and we have to prevent it. For most people, for most, for the average church, if you do, and we, we have a whole chapter on community assessment where you, we train you as a church to walk the eight blocks around your church and see what are the needs actually near your church building, your brick and mortar, you're going to find for most of the time, because 80% of human trafficking is actually labor trafficking, labor, which is going to be, you know, your dishwashers your nail salons, uh, who's cleaning your hotel rooms. And, and so really try to educate yourself. If there are vulnerable people in my community as a church, who are they? How do I find them? How do I see them? And because the church is so embedded in the community, that is what gives it its unbelievable strength and its unique position to prevent it in the first place. You know, we talk in the book, we, we give this analogy of a, of a fence post and a cliff. And we say, you know, picture the cliff as, as human trafficking that, that vulnerable people are pulled off of or fall off of. And we talk about that in the book. There's these push-pull factors of how people become enslaved and, and caught up in this. And most of the money in nonprofit organizations and in churches goes to scraping the people off the bottom of the cliff after they've already fallen off. And of course, those organizations 100% have to exist. But our premise is, as a church, we should be a part of this protective safety fence so that nobody ever falls off in the first place. And so the, the entire book is built around these fence posts. Look at your church. What fence posts can you build? For instance, maybe you're a church in an inner city. We have a given example of, a, of an aging congregation. They were like, we want to get involved. We don't know what to do. Should we build an after care? No. Are you social workers? Are you doctors? No. But what they did have was a building across from a middle school and a bunch of empty classrooms after school. And so they started wet, um, internet safety classes. That is fighting human trafficking. That is prevention. Taking these kids into your building and teaching them how to not become victims on the internet. And so that's their fence post. And then they get to connect that fence post to maybe law enforcement or to the other people around them. 
And, uh, and it's really powerful as churches really start to collaborate in the greater community with what they can do and what they can do well. Yes, I want to come and talk on about social media and, and the internet because a lot of parents, particularly in New Zealand and well all over the world really, are so concerned about their children on online and what's happening to them and the, the uh, potential for abuse. But can we just deal a little bit with the two forms of human trafficking that you've mentioned? But I want to start with the statistics that you present in the book, which truly, truly shocked me. Uh, you said, I think, that the, there are more people enslaved today than there were during the entire transatlantic slave trade. And am I right in thinking the figure you give is something like 27 million slaves in the world today? Yes. And, and that is commonly believed to be a very, very low number. And it's important for people to expand their understanding of what, you know, we call it modern day slavery. We call it human trafficking. And we, we, we unpack this a little bit more in the book, but it really is this idea that anytime you have lost control, like you can't, you're, you're, you can't move, you, you don't have freedom of movement. You have lost control of your paperwork, whether that's your identification or your passport. If you don't have control of, of being, if you're not being paid, of course, that would be slavery. Or if you're not in control of the money that is given to you, um, you know, the, that's what modern day slavery looks like. And so that's why it's very hard to identify. It's why it's very hard to, to get the numbers um, accurate. I mean, and there's, I mean, evil knows no bounds. Mm. So there's human trafficking in India where they're, you know, five-year-olds are making bricks out of clay and they're just, you know, nonstop working. They are slaves. They can't leave. And then there's cases of human trafficking in Orange County where uh, there's a minor that just works for a wealthy family and never leaves the home and doesn't get any schooling and is just feeds their kids and does their housework and is invisible to the community. That is human trafficking. And that's the labor trafficking piece. So, you know, it's, um, and in America, we have this term coyote, and that's the person that brings the illegal immigrants across the border. And that's human trafficking very often, because what happens is the guy says, okay, you pay me this much money, I'll bring you into America. And then what happens is he wants more and more money. He says, fine. It's really this old concept when in the States, we learned it as indentured servanthood. So people came over from Europe and they would work for 10 years and then they were free. That's human trafficking. So, you know, this idea that it still happens. Sure, you can come over into America, but you will pay me for 10 years to pay off this debt because I got you here safely. That's human trafficking. So there's, and there's so many different types. We, um, we unpack them, of course, in the book, but um, that is, again, why the numbers and the statistics are very, very um, difficult to, to get specific. And one assumes that human trafficking is still very closely linked with organized crime. Yes, these are huge crime syndicates. And that's the thing that is really, they are so sophisticated. And so originally the term trafficking, like for me, when I first was educating myself, I associated it with drug trafficking because it's moving a product from one place to another, or more specifically, like across state lines or across nation borders. So human trafficking got that phrase because what they learned was these crime syndicates, they're moving the people. They're moving them. So even if it's not like a, you know, a, a human smuggling situation of human trafficking, they still move them because it, they, because if you stay in one place, law enforcement's going to figure out that there's a warehouse of 30 women that are, you know, they, they move them. And so it's a very um, 
coordinated, sophisticated crime network of moving people around to exploit them for work or labor or sex. Yes. How, how do people actually end up being trafficked for labor? Can you give us one or two, uh, without mentioning names, I suppose, one or two examples? Yeah. I mean, I think um, the, the stories that you hear a lot of are, there's a lot of, uh, there's a problem right now in the Middle East where a lot of Filipino women are being brought over to work to, as domestic workers. And they're actually like, they are, they're on the streets, they're finding them, they're promising them good jobs, like, come on over, you're going to live this wonderful life, you know, and then they get over there and they realize they are indeed domestic workers, but they work 20 hours a day, they sleep on the floor with the animals, and they're paid nothing or very little. And they, you know, they're cut off from their families, they can't write them, they can't send the money back. So I think that very often happens. Um, another, a, a pretty famous case that happened, I believe it was California, which is so evil. You don't even understand how people can do this is that they, they actually went and targeted men with special needs. So men with handy, mental handicaps or physical handicaps, and they brought them to a farm and they, they lived in a barn and they worked for nothing. And some of these men, when they rescued them, they'd been there for like 30 years. Wow. So, I mean, you know, the, the drug traffickers figured out if somebody uses a drug, you use it once it's gone, but a, a person you can keep using over and over. Mm, it's shocking. Isn't it? Well, we're going to come on and talk about sex trafficking. What's the connection between pornography and sex trafficking? You know, there's a huge debate about that. I personally believe that it is a hundred percent connected and that pornography is um, the more as a global culture or it ha- it's here in America where they're trying to you know, legalize it and all this stuff, the more we normalize pornography, the more we will see of human trafficking, 100%. And, in, and quite frankly, a lot of the sex trafficking, you know, they'll, they'll be, you know, this stuff's pretty easy to find if, in the internet if you find these articles or people like International Justice Mission that are actually doing the rescues, you know, is that that's a huge part of the sex, the sex trade right now is sort of these, the, the online video creation of sex abuse to minors and it's consumed all over the world and people call it pornography and it's not, it, it is, it's the, it's the, it's the exploitation, it's the sexual exploitation of minors. And we talk about that um, in the book that that language matters, like being human trafficking literate matters. So, you know, if, if some girl gets arrested and she's 16 and, and the news is calling her a prostitute, she's not a prostitute. That is, you know, that is the sexual exploitation of a minor. And, and, and that language matters and it matters how we think about it. And it matters how seriously we take these issues of exploitation, you know, online, whatever pornography you know, or actual, um, sex work, you know, on the street, but I will say, you know, and this is a whole other huge issue that as parents, they need to be aware of is particularly since COVID and the lockdowns, there's been an incredible uptick in what they call self-generated images or self-generated. It's not child pornography. Some people would call it that, but it's basically the, Children themselves are putting compromising images on the internet. And there's a whole lot of reasons of how this happens. They're groomed. 
and like any other way, they meet someone online, they're talking and they say, oh, just send me this one little picture. Oh, just send me this one little picture. And it seems flirtatious. And so they start sending pictures and then bam, the exploitation happens. And they say, you know what, you will now do this. You will now sneak out and meet me here. You will now do this for money and pay me, or I'm going to tell your parents and I'm going to show them these pictures. And so it is very easy to ensnare children today. And so parents have to be so brave. They have to go into their phones and into these iPads and see what, and their search histories. They need to know exactly. I was not this way. I, my child is a 20 year old and I feel like I dropped the ball. He was the Guinea pig. He's that generation that had a smartphone when he was 12 and I had no idea what he was looking at. And it makes me cringe. So I am very outspoken that be that annoying parent that knows that has every single app on their phone and they know every single person they're talking to because this grooming, it happens so quickly and you might never know anything is happening. It's part of youth culture too, isn't it? I mean, you, again, I can't remember the statistics, but you quote them in your book. A huge percentage, a number of young people are involved in sexting and sending, comp, how should I put it, compromised photographs of themselves to one another. It's just, it's almost common practice. Yeah, and it really, I again, I, I'm so of strong of the opinion that if we, we are talking to our children about this, and for us, it's seventh or eighth grade. I don't know what that translates to other education system, systems. So if you're, if you're waiting to talk to your children at age 12 or 13, it's too late. It is too late. So, you know, um, I was, I've helped with some curriculum, like a K through 12 curriculum, and it, ha- it literally has to start in kindergarten and preschool in those very beginning grades of, you know, maybe not that strong language, but this idea of who are, who are safe people, who are unsafe people, what's a safe way to use the internet? What's an unsafe way to use the internet? How can you so easily be taken advantage of by, you know, by, I mean, we, we have all those children's books and we just are now living in an era where it has to so explicitly be communicated of what is happening online, because it, it, that is what is so prevalent in our high schools. I mean, I, yeah, there's all studies on that of, of, of how by a certain age, how many people have been asked to send a nude picture? And I don't have that stat, but somebody could look it up. It is, it's so depressing. And as parents, Christian parents, as a church, as any church that, that has a youth ministry, uh, it's, it, I, this is, again, the church is uniquely positioned for prevention. And it is not just what's happening with, with the vulnerable people outside of your walls. Your children are vulnerable and we can't, we can't close our eyes or put our head in the sand that my kids are fine. They're not looking at that stuff. Yes. It, yes, they are, or it's being sent to them or it's popping up on their screen. Okay. So we have a parent listening to this, uh, thinking I suspect my child has a problem with this. How do they go about monitoring the social media accounts And how do they talk? How do they best talk to their children about this kind of thing? Yeah, that's a great question. And there are really, really great resources that I, I can send those links. Can we do that? Okay. There's incredible, there's incredible videos that parents can watch. There are links that parents can, can read. There are, there, there are so many people have put resources into this because it is such a serious issue. And, um, and then there are, there are apps 
And I, again, I can, I can send you the links and that can be in the, yes, the, and I'll, put, I'll put them up on our website yeah. when we publish the podcast. Yep. And there's, awesome. there's ways that you can monitor your, the phone and obviously no phone, a, a, a no brainer one is, which I didn't do again, is no phones in the bedroom at night, mm. like at seven mm. o'clock, the cell phones go in a basket and they stay there till mm. seven o'clock the, the next morning. I mean, like really stuff where your kids are going to fight you and your kids are going to be like, but so-and-so, and you just have to be like, no, I'm, you know, that not in this house. Like you're not entitled to that phone. <laughs> like that's, this is your, that's a benefit. And, you know, just sort of having those kind of rules and, um, you know, and I, you know, my co-author Kimberly, and she was so good with this stuff. She talked to her kids at such a young age about all of it. She was so candid. I mean, not like traumatizingly candid, but she was just honest. She was honest. Like this is what could be on the other side of the screen. This is the kind of person who could be on the other side of the screen. I mean, she would even trans she's that mom who, you know, at Halloween was like, no, we're not taking any Hershey's candy because, you know, they have slaves that, that harvest that and her kids are sobbing. And she's like, fine. I don't care. You're not eating a Hershey's candy bar. I mean, you know, so it depends on really like how intense you want to be with it, but you know, it, it is really important as consumers, whether we're consuming the internet or consuming products or consuming information, especially as parents um, to model it and, and to be brave about it, about how, you know, today is Monday, Thursday, like, like that whole attitude of, you know, Christ have mercy. Like, what is the part that I'm actually playing in perpetuating modern day slavery and human trafficking? And yes, it can be overwhelming, but I, but I believe that as parents and as members of churches and leaders of churches, we can be very intentional. Final question, Shane, we could talk about this for hours. How can we identify a human trafficking victim in our neighborhood, in our city? people we meet, we might become a bit sensitive to things that don't seem right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, that's a pretty wide question because so many communities look so different. Mm. Um, You know, very often if like, let's say if you're in an urban setting and you um, like common place might be like a nail salon, you know, maybe it's a place that you, you go to a lot, you know, if you're seeing that the people are constantly changing, that's a red flag. If the girls and the boys in there working are never the same, that would be a red flag or start, just talk to the people in your community. Often, you know, I'll say, I'll start conversations and I say, oh, how long have you, again, I'm a United States. How long have you been in the States? If they, if they don't know how long they've been here, red flag. If they don't want to talk about it, red flag. If they don't make eye contact, red flag. If they, if you ask their name and they say, Nancy, yeah, no, that's not your name. You're from Cambodia, you know, red flag. So, you know, there's, and, and we do um, really outline, outline that in the book of just some really tangible ways to, to see, to sort of flesh out the vulnerable people around you, because that's the bottom line is, you know, as the church uniquely positioned in the community, it's, it's really, you're looking for the vulnerable and the vulnerable are, are poverty. The vulnerable are your foster kids. The vulnerable are your runaways. What is that stat? It's like within, within 48 hours, a, a runaway kid will be approached by a trafficker, AKA a pimp. A runaway will be approached within 48 hours of running away from home. So those, those are your vulnerable. So you want to, you know, you want, you look for the vulnerable in your midst and, and, and that, that's what it would look like in your community. Mm. Shane Moore, the co-author with Sandra Morgan and Kimberly Mac-Owen-Yim of this fabulous new book from IVP America, which I think everyone should read. Um, I found it a real eye-opener. It's called Ending Human Trafficking, 
a handbook of strategies for the church today. And goodness only knows we in the church need to get our act together on the subject and get educated, don't we, really? Thank you so much, Shane, for your time. And uh, thanks, too, to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. Shane, thank you so much. Thank you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.